0: Hey everybody, welcome to the spoiler edition of the Game of Thrones podcast by Bald Move. It's uh, for the Game of Thrones television series HBO, particularly episode 502, The House of Black and White. If you have not read all of the books and are a show watcher who is afraid of being spoiled, or for that matter, a book reader who's afraid of being spoiled by analysis of the show, if you're just spoiler adverse, this is not the cast for you. If you want to know more about the background of Westeros and you want to know more about the crazy theories, the fan theories that uh, are speculated wildly around the Internet on places like Reddit and uh, Wiki of Ice and Fire and places like that, then uh, stay on board because it's a good time. But again, last chance. If you don't want to be spoiled, get out. Lots of good stuff in this episode. Um, I tried not to lead Jim too hard on some things. Uh, for example, Littlefinger's marriage proposal that I had some definite ideas on, and the whole grayscale thing. Uh, my take on the grayscale is I've heard that they are going to dispense with the whole Griff and Egon plot, but that is a really tasty action scene, and I feel like the D double Ds really like hitting those. And I can—I'm not sure exactly how, but I can definitely see a situation where you know, obviously, Varus and Tyrion have to get to Danny somehow, and they might as well do it on the Roin River. And they're going to encounter the Sorrows, and there's going to be a battle with the Stonemen. And I think it'd be interesting to see Varus be the one to reach in and get uh, fish Tyrion out of the river and Varus is the one that ends up con, uh, contracting grayscale. I almost said it would give him more skin in the game, but I don't think you can discount what got thrown into the brazier by the warlock. I feel like that probably counts. So He's already got skin in the game. This would be new skin or like a personal investment in the Tyrion Danny uh storyline, which I think would be kind of cool. And again, you know, I feel like it's going to be a thrilling 2 to 5 minutes uh scene that doesn't really need the Griffin egg on Parts around it to support it, and I, I feel pretty confident that we're going to see that. Because why else mention all the goddamn Grayscale? They didn't introduce it that much when they debuted uh, Shireen for the first time. The other thing I've been noodling on with some fans in the forums, uh, which you can join in that conversation at forums.baldmove.com, is where this little finger marriage proposal is going to, uh, to end up. Where is he taking her that would keep her safe from Cersei? Now, I feel like that they are going to put Sansa in that role and Littlefinger is going to offer her up to Ramsay as a bride. And Roos is going to go along with this because it's going to consolidate his rule in the north, much the same way the fake Arya plot went. And for my money, uh, real Sansa is greater than fake Arya as far as drama, as far as stakes. Uh, I think it's really interesting her taking a personal role in her revenge, like we said on the, the full cast. If you see what Sansa is capable of when she's just being manipulated, when she's just a victim, when she has no idea her role in the way she's shaping things, she, you know, can topple kings. So what can she do within the walls of Winterfell with Littlefinger's aid and support? Um, but the way this goes down is, I see Sansa being properly trained and equipped by Littlefinger to kill Ramsay on their wedding night. Uh, chaos is going to ensue. We're not going to be left knowing who lives and who dies. Um, And then at that point, I think John gets the pink letter, which will set up season five very nicely, which perhaps implies Littlefinger is behind the plot to try to make John break his vows of neutrality, which will somehow weaken Stannis, which is somehow going to benefit Littlefinger. I'm not really sure, uh, you know, and I'm kind of fuzzy on those, the, the hows and whys, like why, you know. Why is Roose and Littlefinger doing this? Why does Littlefinger think that Cersei will be safe at Winterfell when the Boltons are kind of Lannister lackeys at this point? I don't really know. Uh, I also read some speculation on Reddit that Brienne might take over the role of Mance or Abel the Bard, and I really like the idea of, of that. I'm not sure... When I say take on the role, I mean, obviously, I think it'd be kind of ridiculous for Brienne to come in as some kind of traveling entertainment. I don't think her and Pod could uh, pass without suspicion. But I could see some form of ninja Brienne scaling the walls of Winterfell and arriving to try to save Sansa with Sansa not really needing saving. Uh, And then you throw in Stannis, uh, his his uh, trying to beat Winter March on Winterfell. That happens in the books. Essentially, they're swapping the characters around, but the same beats are coming together to make this giant clusterfuck at Winterfell, where that's exactly what we're left with at the end of the dance, right? We as a reader don't know who lives and who dies. Uh, We've got this letter purporting to come from Ramsay Bolton, kind of declaring victory that inflames John, but we don't know the truth or veracity. I mean, that could work really well in show terms to show all these things coming together, and then you just kind of pan out, and we as the viewer are like, what the fuck happened? So I think that's a pretty strong and elegant way to kind of bring all those points together. And again, I think Sansa is greater than Jean Pool slash fake Arya. I think that some version of Ninja Brienne... Is greater than Abel and the Spearwives, and I don't see any reason why they can't pull that off. Uh, pretty satisfactory. I'm also curious about them making Jack and Hagar the kindly old man. Uh, I think it's really good from an economy of character standpoint, and but it might mean that Jakin or Jackin. I always want to call him Jakin because Jackin just seems. You know, vaguely masturbatory, or not even all that vaguely, pretty on the nose masturbatory. He's, he's just over there jacking it. Uh you know, jackin's doing a lot of interesting things going down in the Citadel in the prologue and epilogue for Dances of Dragons, which we talked about last year in episode 409 at the one-hour 44-minute mark, uh, the segment about Jack and Hagar, the sand snakes in the Citadel. Uh I I just I I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of cool things he's doing. I suppose he could still train Arya. And then at the end of the season, we see him doing some skulky things over there. It's not mutually exclusive. But if he's going to have some ongoing role with Arya at the uh, faceless man headquarters, then he can't be off in the realms doing other interesting things. Which we're going to be talking about that, how the impact of the show is influencing our book readers uh, view of what's going on on the written page. Uh, we got some speculation about John Snow being the thousandth or the 998th Lord Commander, which we know in the books he dies at the end of Dance of Dragons, implying that someone else will be the 999th Commander. There's also a lot of popular speculation about that uh, thousandth Knight Commander, and I'll get a little bit of that down later because I think I got some uh, feedback on that. And uh, next week's episode is titled The High Sparrow. Which I'm a big fan. Last year, I talked about the High Septon is Howland Reed theory. And you'll recall Howland Reed is perhaps the only living man, if he's still alive, in Westeros that knows the true identity of Jon Snow. If the L plus R equals J theory is true, which, I mean, to be honest, I think everyone at this point believes that's 100% true. Uh, I I like the theory that the High Septon is Howland Reed, and I'm going to be looking at this character very carefully as we go forward to see if I can glean some insights, Uh, you know, see which way the winds are blowing on the television show to see if there's stuff that corroborates that theory or disproves it, with the full knowledge that just because it's disproven on the show does not necessarily mean it won't be true in the books. So, let's get on to the spoiler feedback. Nick B says, we're very quickly seeing many important differences between book events and show events, so what does all this mean? I think it's best summed up by Lady Celeste talking to her daughter Shireen, All of your books and you still don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it, but I felt like the double Ds were breaking the fourth wall, but as book readers, we have no retort, we have no comeback. We're just along for the ride like Tyrion and Varys. We are just in a box waiting for what's next. I miss that, and I had a couple people send it in to me. Uh you happen to be the first, Nick. And I really I really like that. Uh We saw a little bit about that in the – I think it was the ninth episode? No, no, no. It was the one before uh, The Mountain and the Viper. Maybe it was The Laws of Gods and Men. Anyway, it's the thunk, thunk, thunk story uh, that uh, Jamie and Tyrion were talking about. And we – a lot of us saw that as kind of commentary of George Martin as the writer – you know, being the unthinking boy just crushing our, our beetles in the garden without regard for our feelings on the matter. And whereas, you know, Tyrion kind of seeing in horror watching all these people die. I'll, so I kind of like the idea that they're throwing little bits and pieces in there for, to kind of tweak us book readers. I like that. It's, it's playful. And if we, can keep, if we can keep the tone civil and playful, I think we'll all do well. Elizabeth Town, Ta- or Elizabeth rather from Texas says, Hey there, I wanted to vent my frustration about the show changes so far. They really are bothering me, but not for the reason they may bother some book readers. With Lady Stoneheart and with the Brotherhood Without Banners missing, Aegon missing, Sam and Gilly probably not going to Old Town, no Jamie at Riverrun, no Iron Islanders, and how many other stories being cut or changed dramatically, that tells me that ultimately they don't contribute to the endgame of A Song of Ice and Fire. With George taking forever to finish *The Winds of Winter* and how long *A Dance with Dragons* and *A Feast for Crows* took to come out, I'm very concerned that he is just writing whatever pops into his head, and makes me wonder why he is writing stuff that is basically irrever- irre- irrelevant. World building is all well and good, but we need to start bringing this sh- story to some sort of conclusion eventually, and it seems as he's having a hard time with this. Now, I love the books and a TV series, but speaking as someone who obsesses over details like crazy. If it turns out I was obsessing about things that ultimately don't matter, that will be hard to take. I will keep watching the show and reading the books, of course, but unfortunately, I'm finding my enjoyment to be less and less. All right. I've talked on this podcast about that very thing, that, you know, it's one thing to see things kind of being streamlined and whatnot, but as book, book readers, we've got this vast world, and there's dozens of plots in any one time that are all going towards what we think is the end game and what happens if some of those turn out to be dead ends well it's like that Tom Cruise movie Valkyrie that's about a, a a plot to kill hitler and if that plot had succeeded it would have changed history in a big way right but it didn't is that movie less interesting just because that plot failed to quote unquote go anywhere if that was a larger, if 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 that was a larger, uh, a piece of a larger work about World War II, would you think as you're reading it, like, oh man, I hope these guys pull this off, and oh, it didn't, and everybody died, and they got executed, and you know, Hitler ended up dying anyway. That just felt like a waste of time. I wonder if George thinks of some of these plots as number one camouflage. So he's throwing a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter out there to kind of keep us guessing and make sure that we don't triangulate in on what he thinks is the true ending. So he can still surprise us, which is a noble goal for an an author. It could also be as a gardener that he's just organically coming up with these schemes that people are going with. And, you know, people that used to be important, people that will be important in the future. Not all of them are going to come to fruition. But. It's still a richer experience, whereas the television show that has 10 hours to deal with any one season doesn't have time and would lose viewers if they tried to go into that kind of detail. So they are steering things and and keeping their eye on the prize and they're taking the direct path there, which, as I've said, it's a less rich, less complex experience, but perhaps more accessible and more exciting and more entertaining. And, you know, less realistic, but more makes more narrative sense. The other thing, if I kind of talk you down off the ledge a little bit, is just because we're not going to have things like Aegon, just because we're not going to have things like Jamie running around in the Riverlands, just because we don't see Lady Stoneheart does not mean that those same important story beats cannot happen by different characters. Um, in fact, it's arguable that Jamie and Braun going down there and let's say that uh Bron ends up getting killed instead of uh eris okark i believe he's the one and Balin swan is the one that goes down there later to investigate what if jamie kind of takes that role and Bron ends up getting killed and it's kind of the same thing that happened but we care more about jamie than we did about any of the other kingsguards uh so we don't really need this whole plot about a kingsguard being seduced by a princess and this plot for a crown and all this other stuff To to get the same thing, which is Dorne is having some kind of really long term, long con strategy against the Lannisters, uh, which, by the way, in the books, gives every indication of fizzling. So I think that there are interesting possibilities that they can use the same characters and change some details and change some plot points and merge characters together And a lot of these threads were dismissing as, all they must not be important. They could be taken on by other characters and carried on in a way that seems satisfying in hindsight. So I guess that's it's just too early. I mean, I understand what you're saying, and you're completely valid to be feeling that way. But I think it's way too early in this season to start saying that this is going to be a disappointing experience for us book readers or – that the show is ruining the books because we'll know what not to care about and 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 what to care about so and the more different the books and the show get, I mean, I've talked a lot about each individual season. sometimes they go pretty far afield, but they do a pretty good pretty good job about circling things back by the finale so that as a book reader, you can see, okay, well, the pieces are all pretty much they they took different paths to get there, but they are where they're supposed to be, right? So let's give it this season to see how things shape up at the end of this and see where they're going. And also, it's, it sucks that we're fighting with our hands tied behind our back because we don't have the next books. The Double Ds know way more about the future of A Song of Ice and Fire than we do. So it's kind of dangerous to second-guess the editorial decisions they're making. And also, if I want to be snarky with Martin, might not have been a bad idea to make more editorial decisions in the whole Feast for Crows, Dance with Dragons writing uh process as well i mean i would not be shocked if there are several hundred pages of what are essentially fluff at the end of the day you know maybe they're world building and maybe they're richer experience but ultimately narrative fluff let's move on to david from melbourne i think or i've only recently finished reading the books and have just started listening to the spoiler cast so i'm sorry if this has already been said but i don't buy the third dragon is the magi who killed a uh who killed a Rego and Drogo it's hard because some of these uh, show watchers only don't get the names right and then I'm not the best with names so it's like okay which what, what are we talking about here if we look at those or who else was killed at around the same time and the timing could have been perfect even if it seems a little off as what we know that the chapters and episodes aren't exactly perfectly aligned with the timelines but why couldn't the third dragon be Ned? If L plus or R equals J is true, then Ned is the uncle to one Targaryen, John, and if they actually married, then he's also Danny's uncle too. It seems unlikely that he'd be the dragon because he was a supporter of Robert's, but he also knew that Joffrey wasn't a true king. Plus he told the small council not to assassinate Danny, and he may have seen that she should rule in the afterlife and went to help her via becoming a dragon. This way John could ride Viserion as it's his uncle and the man who has a father to him his whole life. Aegon could ride Rhaegal as they are cousins and may look like or may look at Danny as a mother figure. And Danny could ride Drogon because Danny rode Drogo. That's kind of I mean, you know, that, that's that's welcome to the world of tinfoil, essentially. Uh, does blood magic work that way? Uh, can someone dying at approximately the same time as some other right happening a whole continent away somehow? I, I don't. I don't think it works the way that Ned can just like voluntarily choose. Oh, this is what's going on. I'm in the ghost world. I'm in the weirwood. Ned. I'm just going to go on over and be this dragon. Now it's more of like his soul would kind of be snatched at the time through this connected blood magic. It's not the craziest thing I've ever heard, um, but I would be surprised. And I I honestly think it's a unique theory. I've never seen it discussed. So uh, next step is David jump on Reddit. Uh, Get over to the Song of Ice and Fire thread and uh, see what people make of it. Jackie McSee. She says, The wall was constructed long enough ago that nobody living knows exactly how it was constructed, and it was imbued with some sort of magic. But again, nobody is exactly sure what that entails. The others that haven't been a threat for thousands of years but are suddenly awakening and threatening men once again. Why are the others awakening now after being dormant for so long? My theory... What if the magic holding the wall together was cast to endure for a thousand lives of men, which was chosen to be measured by the number of Lord Commanders? Jon Snow is elected the 998th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. At some point in the book, Sam comments that they aren't entirely sure of the number of Lord Commanders, so it's possible that Jon was actually the 999th or even thousandth Lord Commander. The others can sense the magic is weakening and are preparing an invasion for the moment when the spell breaks. Uh, spoiler, like when John gets the Julius Caesar treatment, and the wall loses its magical wards and turns back into an old crumbling block of ice ready to be knocked over. Uh, that's again, a decent tinfoil theory. The thing that's kind of missing is you'd need to have some kind of contextual or textual example of what the significance of the thousandth Lord Commander. Now it's super popular to assume that there is something to the thousandth Lord Commander. Um, your take that they, the the Lord Commander numbering might be off is interesting, and John would actually be the thousandth Lord Commander. But you wonder how the hell would they find that out? Like that feels like that would have to be some Deus Ex Machina revelation uh, that you know, or Sam would have to comb through seven thousand years of Night's Watch history to arrive at the fact that oh, you're actually the thousandth Lord Commander. Like I said up top, I think more likely that Jon is going to die as 998, someone else will be 999. It's popular theory that Jon is going to be resurrected by some combination of warging into ghost and Melisandre zombie raising his body, and then he can either reinherit he, that he can either be he can either arise as free from his bonds of Lord Commander and his Night's Watch vows and he can go fuck shit up in the Seven Kingdoms or whatever. Or also that he could then be both 998th and be reconfirmed as a thousandth Lord commander, which everyone seems to think is significant. You know, why at this point in history is it the thousandth and why are we so close and yet John is you know two positions away? What is that going to mean? I don't really know, but it's kind of interesting to, to, to speculate. What would that mean? And you're right. There has to be to have a credible invasion against the south. Something has to happen to the wall. So your theory is good, but there is no prophecy whatsoever saying anything about Thousand Lives of Men or anything like that. So uh, I, I don't know where to go on that. So let's move on. Thanks for the theory. Let's move on to Michael M. I haven't worked out all the details, but I wanted to get your take on Brienne taking the place of Mance going to Winterfell. Since Mance is dead and from the trailers we see Brienne and Snow, what do you think the likeliness of Brienne going up to Castle Black, explaining how she's looking for Sansa and being sent to, uh, to get her? Also, since we don't have Lady Stoneheart, could Brienne possibly be caught at Winterfell and hung there? Ooh, that's some interesting stuff. Uh, I was thinking that Brienne would just follow Sansa to Winterfell uh, as the way to kind of connect her there. And I do like the theory of Brienne taking the role of Mance. Uh, but yeah, her going to the wall, since that's something that pod suggested and why, you know, if we're talking about narrative economy, econo- economy, why would pod suggest that if not to raise that question in her mind? So that's certainly possible that that would even be closer adhering to the book that she's sent on a personal mission from John to do that for him. Uh, about this lady Stoneheart business. What if Brienne becomes lady Stoneheart? What if after her fail, let's assume that this all fails and she doesn't rescue Sansa because Sansa doesn't need rescuing, or Sansa dies, or Stannis gets there first and she does a assassination attempt on Stannis because she hates him, and then she's whatever. Uh, what if uh, she's kind of disillusioned, she's riding with Pod, and she comes across the b- a Brotherhood without banners and they're leaderless at the time, at, at this time, which I don't know how they would explain that because. Beric dies kind of birthing Lady Stoneheart. Or I guess if we just stick with your theory, what if she does get hung by the Boltons or hanged by the Boltons, and then uh, they bring her back via Beric magic, Lord of the Light magic? That would be cool, and it would be interesting to see kind of the dark side of Brienne. Another idea is what if this all comes to pass, and Sansa, some combination of Sansa, Stannis, and Brienne... Massacre the Boltons, and then Sansa becomes the leader of the band Brotherhood Without Banner. She becomes Lady Stoneheart, and she sends Brian on a mission to kill the phrase and also kill Jamie Lannister. This essentially is the exact same beat from the book without having to, you know, bother with the uh, cat uh, and get the actress back. Uh, I, I kind of like that. I could see this. I've already kind of seen the dark side of Sansa and she can be this cold, severe character. And, you know, she's been such a long term victim of so many atrocities and so many disgusting, horrible things that, you know, she's kind of lived a long, slow burn of the Red Wedding from the time she came to King's Landing. Right. So every motivation that Catelyn has, Sansa would have, too. And I think that would be kind of cool. Patrick says, I think Brienne will kidnap Sansa from Winterfell and will head for the wall or for Stannis. She then will struggle with her hateful feelings for Stannis as she'll see him doing a lot of good. That's another good wrinkle. Um, is Stannis the man that she thought, thinks he is? Is he just the, the shadowy figure that killed her love? Or is can she see some good in him? Is there going to be a redemption arc in her eyes with Stannis as the same as there was with Jamie? I don't know because it seems like she hates Stannis a lot more, uh, where she just had kind of contempt for Jamie, but we'll see. Reed says regarding Sansa, as long as she keeps pretending to be Elaine, probably the only person who would know her would be Theon. And wouldn't that be interesting? Crazy Reek recognizes Sansa, but no one else does, and that's what helps restore Theon's sanity instead of Brandon to Weirwood. Sansa, along with Littlefinger and his men, can take the disruptor role that Mance and his spearwives play, and maybe she could even go as far as to get into pie making if we don't get the Manderleys, Although, Reed says parenthetically, I think we need the Manderly's. That would be a neat and efficient option, in my opinion. Well, tell you what, Reed, let me free associate on your theory here. What if Ramsey is to wed Sansa uh, again, as I mentioned, for the Boltons to solidify the rule in the North? Which, again, the same reason they married fake Arya in the books anyway. And Ramsey for his wedding present, Sansa, bakes her a fray pie as some kind of twisted attempt to win her over or win her affection, or just because he's Ramsay. I mean, it's hard discussing the motivations of Ramsey. It's hard to discuss the motivations of kind of a crazy person. So, why would... Why would Ramsey try to? I, this is the danger of free associating on someone's email. I, I I throw out a theory there and then realize there's not a lot of underpinnings because why would he turn on the phrase? Okay, he's crazy, but why would he be trying to woo Sansa instead of brutalizing her? Oh, because he's cra- like that's starting. I'm starting to feel lazy in my own eyes. So maybe we should just move on. I, I like a lot of elements of that theory, though, Reed. Nathan P said, do we know for a fact that Bran is not appearing this season? I know Hodor isn't, but I can't remember about Bran. He seems important and he should be there even a little, but I haven't heard or I have heard that he has the year off. Uh, Alan Sepinwall seems to think so. He confirmed it. And I think it's widely discussed and scuttlebutt on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddits and forums that, yes, Bran indeed is not going to be seen in season five, which is mind blowing. Considering how little effort it would take to kind of move the ball Along with him and the Third Eye Crow, but on the other hand, he he, he doesn't necessarily need to happen because that plot is kind of divorced from the time. To- Although, man, it means there's definitely not going to be any con. We're not going to see any of the weirwood network stuff through the eyes of Bran that happens at Winterfell. Although, I guess he can look the past and future. I don't know if that's failed or not. The con side is uh isaac is his hemstead the guy that plays bran is going to be another year older and he's already kind of rough in the role of, of bran the other con the, the pro side though is it gets us a year to put the taste of that crappy shitty three-eyed raven out of her mind and they can recast him and go all out on a makeup budget and make him look really cool when they reintroduce him so to me that sounds like a wash we'll, we'll have to keep our eye eyes on it but yeah as, as credible as it seems bran is not going to be seen at all this season uh, he continues with some random theories there's talk of an ice dragon in the wall and of waking of an ice dragon but if r plus l equals j is true Jon snow is an ice dragon at the wall a good point and i can't remember if i actually mentioned that in my discussion of the r plus l equals j theory and again. The whole archive of these theories can be accessed in the show notes of this podcast, so if you hear me reference one and you're like, ooh, that sounds interesting, uh, go hit up that uh, link, and it'll take you to a forum post where I have the, all those archives, so you can quickly find them. It has the timestamps and everything, so you can jump right to it. Uh, yes or no, Jon Snow dies in Episode 9, completing the pattern of shocking death, major battle, shocking death, major battle, shocking death, so far, seemed in the penultimate episode of each season. Yes. Yes, I think that is a great climax and it fits kind of where my mental image of us progressing through Dance with Dragons is like we'd be towards the end of that book and we'd be towards the end of the series. So, sure. I also like to take a moment to talk about the House Greyjoy in general. I can see multiple uh, possibilities of what might happen in the show with their inclusion or absence. Now, to be fair... I'm not a big fan of the Greyjoys. I hated all their stuff in the books, and I would be glad. I mean, to me, the only interesting thing about them is that they gave birth to Theon, which is kind of an interesting and pivotal character. Everything else can go fuck themselves. But, but I do know they're super popular among certain segments of the book reader population. So uh, we'll go ahead and entertain this for you guys behalf. He says one scenario is that they're completely removed from the show. Uh, No Kingsmoot, Yara just leaves completely in shame after failing to save Theon, Balan is killed off-screen, and Theon gets a mercy killing uh, after pleading for forgiveness, a.k.a. the Aeron cut. The pros, less characters and a streamlining of plots, cons, no badass Asha and Euron, and may break immersion for future plots and books. Option 2, introduced Greyjoys in Season 5, but with no casting news, this seems unlikely. In fact, it's no possible way that they've stealth cast Victorian or Euron. I just dismiss that out of hand as a possibility. So let's move on to uh, option a third. Staggered the Greyjoys entry into season six. This is my favorite option. It means several things. Viewers can get more easily or can more easily get to know the new characters in Dorne without introducing even more in Pike. The Greyjoy's plot from the books is still included in the show. It's just more compact so that the power is more obvious rather than building up over time. This is especially true if they build up slowly in power, only for Danny to take them out at the end of season six to symbolize her entry in Westeros. Uh, Going on from the above point, it makes sense that the house would be introduced for them to, for one of the better words, actually do something. This could play out similarly to Stannis in season two, building up to an eventual assault on a key player for the iron throne. Euron's general badassery and can be experienced by the show watchers or alternatively have Yara remix it up by being the head of the Greyjoys. Uh, He continues, Nathan does, that I will say that I'm not a real Greyjoy fan, but I do like the potential Gurm has set up for them in the books. I feel it's only right that he gets represented in some way in the shows, just like Lady Stoneheart, but that's another email. Of course, the winds of winter will probably hint at any involvement they will have in the show's future, so this is all mere speculation. I know you don't like the Greyjoys, but I'm pretty sure you hate outstanding plot threads that may remain unaddressed by the end. Yeah, and I definitely don't like the Greyjoys more than I don't like dangling plot threads. Essentially, Especially since I consider Victorian to be a slightly more colorful, but ultimately as meaningful Quentin Martell Uh, when I, he's just going to be another failed suitor of Danny. And I feel like it's one of those Valkyrie points. I'm going to start calling him Valkyrie points or Tom, Tom cruises, where it's just a red herring to keep the show interesting. And as you know, to stay true to his gardener instincts, but I really think the ultimate contribution of the ironborn is to give birth to reek slash Theon. Thanks for email. Let's move on to Matt S. Do you think if they leave Stoneheart out, it would be because it would send the gems of the world over the edge with magic because of the money with the actress or because they legit think the story is better without her. I still think she comes back. I, I was a big fan of lady Stoneheart coming into this season or being teased at the end of this season. Uh, But it seems more and more that everyone's saying that's not going to happen. I think her name is Michelle Farley. Maybe it's Faraday. The actress I've heard is busy, and in every interview it says that, you know, her, you know Kat's dead, and it's not that she doesn't have any... I'm, I'm making her sound more bitchy than she sounds, but she's just essentially saying no. She's not reprising any role in Game of Thrones. Um, it would drive Jim crazy, and, you know, that's a concern of mine. Like, if this turns into, like, some kind of, you know, Gandalf on the bridge of in the minds of moria you know fire demons versus light staffs and stuff like that i don't know what i'm going to do with my co-hosts like i suppose uh i feel like i'm the marjorie tyrell of this podcast like my co-hosts continue to be eliminated and i'm the one that just like okay uh it's time to it's time to cast the jarhead okay it's time to cast the sci-fi nerd maybe i'll have maybe he'll die off and i'll have to get somebody else I don't know. The cast will go on. But that is a legitimate concern of mine. Uh, if this gets to be, like, really high fantasy with magic bringing people back willy-nilly. I mean, you know, a lot of people hate that about Jim, but I respect it. I mean, it is harder to engage with a world where pe- when people die, they don't really die. It's already hard enough when people can almost die or look like they die, but they're not really dead. But they can be, like, dead, rotted, in the ground, floating down the river and then they're brought back to life that unless you really trust the people telling you the story, that just is such a lazy story writing tool. So, you know, I can say till I'm blue in the face that, well, Martin only uses that sparingly or only when it makes good narrative or prophetic sense, it's still going to look like bullshit to people that don't like that aspect. And I, it's not just the Jim Jones is the bill Simmons over at uh, the of the world. Um, Lots of people share that opinion, so I hope it doesn't go that way, but wouldn't bother me, and and I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get there. John T says, what the ever-living fuck? I'm very curious to see how this all plays out. Was Was this the most original episode in Game of Thrones history? It seems like about 90% of this episode was a deviation from the source or at least significantly altered. Do you feel like in their desires to streamline the episode, the show, it's doing a disservice to the story by oversimplifying a skipping... Steps. I think at this point, no Lady Stoneheart is a given, no Manderlies, which is a big hit to the Grand Northern conspiracy and the North remembers, no or significantly downsized Ironborn plot lines, no Aegon, and certainly a very simplified a version of Dorn's part. Which of these plots will you miss the most? For me, I was really looking forward to the Manderlies plot and how it all plays out on the road and at Winterfell. Honestly, You know, Manderley's going missing would be pretty, pretty terrible because one of the big, uh, you know, North Northern supporters, things that we can hang our hats on is that whole the North remembers and this mummer's farce will soon be over. Uh, That is like a crowning moment of badass. And then if you start digging deeper into the Grand Northern conspiracy, it really warms the heart that all these Northern lords are conspiring to. Uh, you know, they don't need to be saved. They don't need anyone except for them, their own strength to rise up and overthrow these bastards that have overrun them. I really like that. And I would miss that. And I would like to see, uh, you know, Lord too fat to ride a horse, everyone underestimating him and him getting drunk and him serving out this pie. And I'd love to see, you know, uh, I'd love to see Walder Frey choking that down. I'd love to see the Ramseys and Bolton's choking all that down all the time. He's chuckling. I'd, think that would be great and it would be a really fucked up counterpoint to the red wedding, uh, at a climax of the season. And again, you throw that into the clusterfuck at Winterfell that we've talked about. And I think that would be really cool. I kind of miss the Dorn plot. Although I assume since again, the Dorn plot kind of went nowhere. I assume that, uh, Doran will have an even cooler, more awesome plot that will be revealed in a later book. And they'll just use that. Um, so I don't know what that is. Uh, I've been spending so much time thinking about the Sansa, Brienne, Winterfell, Theon, Mance, all that stuff angle and, uh, that I haven't really given thought to what's going down south, especially since we just got the barest introduction to and I'm assuming in the next two or three episodes we'll get more of that and maybe we can turn our eye towards that. Tom says, I have a theory regarding Brienne of Tarth. My girlfriend and I have been rewatching old seasons of Game of Thrones, and it came across a moment which made us just look at each other and say Targaryen. In season two, after Brienne and Caitlin have decided to flee and Brienne was sworn to protect her, they start asking each other's, about each other's upbringing, and Caitlin says that her mother and Brienne, uh, wait, sorry. Catelyn asks about her mother. Let me pronounce her name correctly first. Catelyn pronounces, or asked about her mother, and Brynn says she never knew her mother, and she died in childbirth. So we assume that she is one of the people who is half Targaryen. I expect she is a Zor Ahai, with Tyrion, John, and Daenerys being the three heads of the dragon. Welcome to the world of tinfoil, Tom. Uh, <laughs> the only thing I would say is that when Brian says she didn't know her mother, I don't think she meant, I don't, like, her mother is unknown. Like, her father, the lord of Tarth, uh, would... Absolutely know the lineage of her mother, and it would be shocking to me if it turns out she is a secret Targaryen, because most of the secret Targaryen theories have to do with mysterious people that have come from mysterious circumstances. They're bastards or they're on another continent or they're squirreled away or they swapped identities, and there's no hint of that in Brienne. But again, here's your tinfoil hat. Welcome to the club. Patience B says we have seen how smart and cunning Littlefinger is when we learned that he has been behind so many of the plots in Westeros. I want to see the same revelation about Varys deep detailed proof of his influence and the show uh, and to show that he is smarter than Littlefinger by leaps and bounds. The battle of good and evil in the form of these two men both appear powerless and both have more power than any king or army. Well, guess what Patience? you just kicked off our next tinfoil segment segment part two of the Mummers Dragons. And I think you'll get a little bit of what you're looking for. So at the end of the last segment, we are left with a whole lot of why questions. Varys and Illyrio are working together to reinstate the Targaryen dynasty. Why? To what end? Well, now we're going to try to attempt to answer those questions. First, it's got to be said, there is a plain reading version of of the why answer. Recall that Illyrio and Varys, their original scheme was a rob from the rich and then ransomed their belongings and their information and their secrets back to them for more money and to make profit. And this worked like gangbusters. Illyrio has become one of the richest people in uh, the Free Cities, and Varys earned himself a Master of Spies, or Master of Whispers, over at King's Landing. So... They essentially practiced this scheme their entire lives, just raising stakes again and again and again and making it more and more successful. So it's easy to look at this scheme in that lens and see this as the exact same scheme, just writ large. Varys took the opportunity, offered him as Spymaster in King's Landing to effectively steal the Iron Throne. Then he and Illyrio work together to put the Targaryens back on the throne at a price, perhaps with Illyrio serving as Master of Coin. Uh, which we see how well that worked out for Littlefinger, or perhaps even something more important, such as a hand. Maybe Illyrio's after lands and titles, he's having climbed as high as he can as a rich man into free cities. And honestly, this feels like a pretty cool reveal, and I like the symmetry of it that these are bandits and they're still bandits hard at work. But let's put on our tinfoil hats and consider a few other increasingly more tinfoily possibilities. But first, got to lay some more backstory, and this is the part that kind of uh, made me break this into two segments because I was having a hard time getting all this stuff in one segment. But I want to tell you the story of King Aegon IV, and this occurs about 100 years before the events in A Game of Thrones or The Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, King Aegon IV was called the Unworthy, and he's essentially a worse version of Robert Baratheon, or maybe what King Robert would have become if he didn't get bored to death. He was drunken, fat, slovenly, wanton, cruel. He fathered many, many bastards, which, okay, sounds like a lot of kings we know. The difference is, on his deathbed, he legitimized all of his bastard children. What that did is throw the realm into chaos, because these great bastards, as they were called, now suddenly were legitimate, and they had what they thought a solid claim, just a solid claim to the throne as their trueborn brother, brother, and this led to an intense series of war. Now, these bastard children of Aegon the Aegon the Unworthy, uh, called themselves the Blackfires, and that was they na- They took their surname after the legendary blade of uh, the original Aegon, Aegon the Conqueror. Uh, he had a famous Valyrian steel blade called Blackfire, um, and it's like the badassest of all the the uh, Valyrian blades. So all the bastard children of Aegon Unworthy took this name as their surname, and they had their designs on the throne, which led, as I said, to years of civil war, a further decline of the Targaryen rule, which by the time they'd already managed to squander their military advantage with the dragons, their dragons progressively becoming weaker and more inbred and more stunted, and there is already previous years of wars between the Targaryens, the dance with dragons that eliminated a lot of them. So they were already kind of waning uh, and this took yet further toll on the family. Now, there's a fight, quite a few theories, tinfoil theories about the decline of dragons and all that, but I'm, that's already too big of a digression. Uh, and speaking of digression, uh, Brendan River is also named Blood Raven, who's also the three eyed crow, mentor of Brand, the one, the, the, the old, uh, the Saruman, the Dingy, sitting on the tree roots uh, under the hill. Was also one of these legitimized blackfires, but he was notable for supporting the trueborn son of Aegon the Unworthy, in opposition of the rest of his bastard brethren. Keep this mind. Keep this in mind as we continue, because I think there's a lot of interesting symmetry in his role of mentoring Bran. Presumably, Bran is going to be vital in either helping John to understanding his lineage as a Targaryen, or will be instrumental in helping John in the wars to come. With a lot of common speculation, that John will be the one of the three heads of the dragon, along with Danny. Uh, so it would show that Brendan Rivers is still a supporter of the true Targaryen line. That'll be relevant here after you hear the rest of the theory. So it's widely believed that the Fires at the time of Game of Thrones are extinct, at least through the male lineages. Let me read a passage from A Dance with Dragon, the second Tyrion chapter.
1: The Golden Company marches toward Valentus as we speak there to await the coming of our queen out of the east. Beneath the gold, the bitter steel. I had heard the Golden Company was under contract with one of the free cities. Mere, Illyrio smirked. Contracts can be broken. There is more coin in cheese than I knew, said Tyrion. How did you accomplish that? The magister waggled his fat fingers. "'Some contracts are rich in ink, and some in blood. <laughs> "'I say no more.' "'The dwarf pondered that. "'The Golden Company was reputedly the finest of the free companies, "'founded a century ago by Bitter Steel, "'a bastard son of Aegon the Unworthy. "'When another of Aegon's great bastards "'tried to seize the Iron Throne from his true-born half-brother,' Bitter Steel joined the revolt. Damon Blackfire had perished on the Red Grass Field, however, and his rebellion with him. Those followers of the Black Dragon who survived the battle, yet refused to bend the knee, fled across the narrow sea. Among them, Damon's younger sons, Bitter Steel, and hundreds of landless lords and knights who soon found themselves forced to sell their swords to eat. Bittersteel... Steel saw the strength of House Blackfire scattering to the four winds, so he formed the Golden Company to bind the exiles together. From that day to this the men of the Golden Company had lived and died in the disputed lands, fighting for mere or lice or Tyrish, in their pointless little wars, dreaming of the land their fathers had lost. I admire your powers of persuasion, Tyrion told Illyrio. "'How did you convince the Golden Company "'to take up the cause of our sweet queen "'when they have spent so much of their history "'fighting against the Targaryens?' Illyrio brushed away the objection as if it were a fly. "'Black or red, a dragon is still a dragon. "'When Melis, the monstrous died upon the Stepstones, "'it was the end of the male line of House Blackfyre.' The cheesemonger smiled through his forked beard, and Daenerys will give the exiles what bitter steel and black fires never could. She will take them home.
0: So we have to kind of devolve into a little bit of the history of the Golden Company. Uh, the Golden Company was was founded uh, was a, as a group of cell swords, founded by the Great Bastard Aegor Rivers. This is another one of Aegon the Unworthy's bastards. Uh, he fled Westeros during the Blackfire Purge and set up the Golden Company. Uh, one of their missions, early missions, was to try to put a Blackfire back on the Iron Throne, and they never were successful. But uh, you know, hundred years later, they have the sterling reputation of being one of the few sellsword companies that never ever cancel a contract. Uh, in fact, their motto is "Our word is as good as gold." But as Illyrio said in the passage we just read, some contracts are written ink and some are in blood. I will say no more. That is super interesting. What contract written blood would supersede a contract written in ink? Well, it's true the Golden Company has never broken a contract, but if it meant fulfilling their original mission, this would make sense. While they broke the mirror contract, it was written in ink. The mission to support a black fire to the throne was written in blood. This is also supported by the Golden Company's other motto, which is "beneath the coal, the gold, the bitter steel." Illyria explained the way the Golden Company broke their contract as saying, "a black or red, a dragon is still a dragon." Basically, meaning black fire, Targaryen. It doesn't really matter, but is that really consistent with the Golden Company's philosophy? There's an interesting chapter in the, the third Daenerys point of view chapter from A Dance with Dragons.
1: Her brother Viserys had once feasted the captains of the Golden Company, in hope they might take up his cause. They ate his food, and heard his pleas, and laughed at him. Danny had only been a little girl, but she remembered. So this kind of puts
0: to the lie that a dragon is a dragon to the Golden Company. Now, you know, Viserys is a fool, there's part of that, but it also, again, kind of directly contradicts what Illyrio is saying here. Another interesting uh, point that Illyrio makes is that he emphasizes, or well, he doesn't emphasize, he mentions that the male blackfire line was extinguished, which you could reasonably conclude that perhaps there are female Blackfires still alive. A lot of popular speculation, and this is where we get into tinfoil, is that the female, one of the females could be
1: Illyrio's late wife, Sarah. Illyrio thrust his hand up his left sleeve and drew out a silver locket. Inside was a painted likeness of a woman with big blue eyes and pale golden hair streaked by silver. Sarah, I found her in a lysine pillow house and brought her home to warm my bed. But in the end, I wed her. Me, whose first wife had been a cousin of the Prince of Pentos. <laughs> the palace gates were closed to me thereafter, but I did not care. The price was small enough for Sarah. There's also an interesting passage
0: in Illyrio's conversation with Tyrion in A Dance with Dragon. Again, this is from the t- second uh, Tyrion chapter.
1: I told you, my little friend... Not all that a man does is done for gain. Believe as you wish, but even fat old fools like me have friends and debts of affection to repay. Liar, thought Tyrion. There is something in this venture worth more to you than coin or castles.
0: What is this debt of affection he's looking to repay? It could be that his wife Sarah is a hidden blackfire. Her appearance is consistent with it. She has blue eyes, although admittedly uh, Targaryens are supposedly to have more purple eyes. She also has very blonde, almost silver streaked, or almost silver hair. In fact, it's blonde hair streaked with silver. This is consistent with the look of a Valerian woman, uh, of a Tar- uh, someone from the Targaryen line. So it could be that his wife actually was a secret bla- blackfire, and they had a son that they were wanting to put on the Iron Throne. And while this all kind of fits, it's, you know, again, not the most solid evidence. However, another piece of evidence is that in Illyrio's mansion, there is a statue of a young boy that looks a lot like the way Aegon is described in the books. Well, I'll read that his description.
1: A naked boy still on the water, poised to duel with a bravo's blade in hand. He was lithe and handsome, no older than 16, with straight blonde hair that brushed his shoulders. So lifelike did he seem that it took the dwarf a long moment to realize he was made of painted marble, though his sword shimmered like true steel.
0: Illyrio explained that away as being a statue of him, his younger self. Maybe he was once a lithe youth and he just grown fat. But again, this is consistent with uh, a statue of his son. And he does seem like he's a conqueror, not a cheesemonger. Let's talk about uh, Septon Maribold's story. Uh, back in a Feast for Crows, this is the seventh Brienne chapter. He tells Pod and Brienne the story of the Crossroads Inn, which I think was we mentioned in connection with one of the um, one of the uh, Danny prophecies last year. It says he forged a new sign for the yard: a three-headed dragon of black iron. That he hung from a wooden post. The beast was so big that it made a dozen pieces, joined with rope and wire. When the wind blew, it, was, it would clink and clatter, so the inn became known far as wide as the clanking dragon. Is the dragon sign still there? asked Podrick. No, said Septon Maribald. When the smith's son was an old man, a bastard son of the fourth Aegon rose up in rebellion against his true-born brother and took for his sig- sigil a black dragon. These lands belonged to Lord Derry then, and his lordship was fiercely loyal to the king. The sight of the black iron dragon made him wroth, so he cut down the post, hacked the sign into pieces, and cast them into the river. One of the dragon's heads washed up on the quiet isle many years later, although by that time it was red with rust. Some supporters of the Aegon is a secret Blackfire suggest that this is an allegory for this experience. That you have this three-headed dragon of black iron uh, that gets thrown down. And then it later comes back uh, after arising from the river. Uh, it washes up red with rust. This would symbolize the black fire dragon Aegon being taken over the narrow sea. And then returning uh, with a coating of red implying that he is a fake Targaryen. He's a red dragon now instead of a black dragon. There's also some more circumstantial evidence in the preview chapters that uh, George Martin released for A Dance of Dragons that changed from the published version. Uh, I don't have any audio clips for this, but uh, from the preview version, the Tyrion chapter we've been reading in, says Illyrio wants to give young Griff his blessings and has a gift for him in these chests. Haldon tells him there's no time for the litter. Illyrio gets angry and says there are things Griff must know. Uh, he held on eyes Tyrion and they begin to speak in another language. Tyrion cannot tell what it is, but it thinks he might be volunteers. He catches a few words that come close to High Valyrian. The words he catches are queen, dragon, and sword. A lot of people think that this is uh, this is Illyrio keeping a chest of B- Blackfire mementos, particularly the famed sword of Aegon the Conqueror, Blackfire itself. A lot of people question, why would Martin remove that from the final copy? Some people say it's because they think if he left those passages in, it would make Aegon's parentage entirely too obvious. So, the next part of the tinfoil, sliding a little bit further down the tinfoil scale, is the question of whether Black, Varys himself is a Blackfyre. There's This is even more circumstantial evidence, but the argument goes uh, thusly that as we've seen from Melisandre's use of blood magic, that it seems that sorcerers prefer to use royal blood because it makes their magic more powerful. Why would this sorcerer that cut Varus root and stem particularly want him uh, and pay a price for this particular slave and this, uh, this troop of mummers? It could be because he himself is a Blackfire Targaryen and he has royal blood in it. Also, a meta reason is that Dunk and Egg, the Dunk and Egg stories, the Dunk and Egg chronicles, cover uh, a lot of history of the Blackfire Rebellion, and people wonder why does Martin think it important to steep us in this ancient lore that seems very far removed from the events of A Song of Ice and Fire. Speaking of Dunk and Egg, Egg, it turns out, uh, is Aegon the Fifth, and traveled as a youth with a shaved head to disguise his Targaryen features. One of Varys' defining features is a cleanly shaved head. In fact, the first time that Catelyn meets him in a Game of Thrones, she describes him as being bald as an egg. These theories, in either combination or isolation, suggest that the Aegon that Varys stole away from King's Landing is in fact a ruse. In fact, he might not have stolen anyone from King's Landing at all. In reality, the Aegon that Varys and Illyrio are supporting is a Blackfire son of Illyrio and Sarah. This puts the Golden Company in a place to finally accomplish the mission they set out on almost a hundred years ago to set a blackfire on the Iron Throne. This makes it fitting that Brendan Rivers, as the Three-Eyed Crow, is potentially aiding the true Targaryen heirs in Jon and Danny against yet another upstart group of blackfires in the form of the Fake Aegon or Fagon, as he's called in a lot of fan circles. Alright, one last bit of P- foil of the purest tin. This is Valerian foil. This is, well, Valerian foil is more high quality. This is, uh, again, the kind of foil you used to find on the old ding-dong wrappers. What if Varys is actually Illyrio's wife? You want some evidence? You want some evidence, I hear. Okay. Recall in Dance with Dragons that the Sand Snake, Sorella, is undercover at the capital city as the boy Alaris. Oh, I talked about this, again, in, in the, uh, I think, episode 409 Uh, the tinfoil section there, but if you take Sorella and you spell it backwards, it's literally Alaris. What is Varys' name spelled backwards? Sarah V. V standing for Valerian. Varys, as it turns out, isn't a eunuch at all. It's just his cover story. He is actually a post-menopausal woman with a high lilting laugh, and she's conspiring with Illyrio to sit their own son on the Iron Throne. Hey, what do you want from me? It's just tinfoil. I hope you've enjoyed this segment. Uh, if you've got some feedback for the next episode or anything in this in particular, you can send it to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Don't worry about Jim seeing it because I have removed him from that distribution list. So now he can safely remain spoiler free as long as he doesn't Google anything about the series at all. Uh, but I really enjoy your guys' takes. I really enjoy your uh, kind words. This is a lot of work, not just in the preparation of research, but it is exhausting to do a solo podcast. Some people have suggested that I get a co-host for this, and it's not out of any kind of ego, uh, and I would greatly prefer to have a co-host for this. It's all to um, finding a person with you know, professional, in quotes, podcast experience, You know, someone that's actually done it, uh and does it well and and has a a good speaking voice and has the equipment that they can do a good audio copy and can sync up uh you know from remote remote locations is really hard especially when you think uh that I'm normally recording these in like friday mornings and thursday afternoons where a lot of the podcasters still have day jobs you know it it's hard for them uh to to do that also uh, another point is a lot of the ones that I'm aware of are like from the West Coast, so that you know time zone makes it difficult, and it's just hard to mesh up your schedule. And this is already like I feel head, you know, ass catching fire head, or ass is on fire head is catching with these spoiler casts. It's like I can barely keep up with them. I'm hoping that as I refine my techniques again, I can get back to some of the more ambitious things I was talking about the preseason casts as far as videos and stuff. Um, but again, it's not that I don't want another co-host it's just i so far haven't been able to work out a arrangement with one that i could could work into my workflow but i really do appreciate your guys's uh, kind words and your suggestions for tinfoil again uh, check out the the uh, tinfoil archive in the show notes so you can see if uh, ones have been covered before Uh, and maybe you can listen to them and expand on them and we can uh, discuss those in future segments because again I feel like we might be getting a little thin on the tinfoil by the end of the season, unless some new information comes forth. So, thank you, thank you very much uh, for all the the kind emails. Thanks everyone for supporting Jim and I uh, through Club Bald Move. Uh, you can find out more details of all the benefits of that at club.baldmove.com. Also, want to thank Audible. We actually reached out to them and asked them if we could use uh, snippets of audio in our podcasts and in our advertisements to help, you know, uh, uh, show people the potential and, uh, to kind of, you know, be a further advertisement and they graciously agreed to let us do that. So I appreciate them giving us the official nod, uh, for using snippets in that. And I encourage everybody, if you are interested in, and in a, uh, if you hear these clips and you think I want to hear more, you can go to dot com slash G O T to sign up and get one free audiobook for, for for free, one free audiobook for free. Yes, I think that 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 says it all. Again, thanks. Uh, can't wait for next week, and I'll see you then.